Welcome to Bad End, episode number 117. I'm your host, Josh Calixto. Kyle is not here today. He's He's got some big life events going on. But we are joined by two special guests today, today one of which we've had on in the past before, a fellow Superculture contributor uh, slash Broken Pencil magazine editor-in-chief, senior editor at Lost in Cult, Zach Coetzer. That's me. How's it going, Zach? I'm good. Happy uh, civic holiday weekend to all those observing the most revered <laughs> holiday in Canada. We can always uh, depend on Zach for those Canada takes. And we can always depend on our other guest, Jacob Geller, for the YouTube video essay takes the uh, and also contributing at Polygon takes as well. Jacob, how's it going? Want to introduce the audience to you and what you do? Hi, I'm Jacob Geller. Yes, thank you for for having me on. I make uh, video essays uh, for YouTube, and that has led to me also uh, occasionally writing for Polygon. And I'm a contributor. Uh, to the MinMax podcast. So if you just need, if people are like, I need more podcasts in my life, uh, then you can add that one as well. But what's the, okay, I imagine, is YouTube like the bulk of what you're doing right now? You, I mean, YouTube, YouTube's the day job that's, you know, 90% of the income. Like, yeah, YouTube's pretty much the the big one. When did you make the transition? When When was the jump? I mean, I... I quit my uh, day job March of this year, uh, so still fairly recent. And at that point, I mean, it, it, I think most people would have done it before then. Uh, maybe I had 500,000 subs at that point or whatever. But like, um, it's scary to do that. I I had health insurance and now I'm paying for my own. Like there are there are lots of reasons that I like held on to kind of a, a normal job for a long time. But now I am uh, yeah, full time YouTube. yeah, I mean, I got it. I feel like there's got to be a sense of freedom that comes with that, but also a bit of the opposite of that. Just like feeling a bit more tied down to your YouTube channel. Has it changed how you look at the process of quote content production at all? Yeah, I mean, I think um you know, the the best part is like I can spend a lot more time on videos than I used to. And it's like my the the frequency of videos of mine has always been pretty consistent that I've done it like a little more frequently than once a month. But like, um, yeah, I, I read two to three books more per essay I'm writing now generally than I used to have time to. And so like, I think the quality has gone up. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, like it, it is the, the problem of tying your career to platforms that you do not control where YouTube could change its algorithm. Patreon could just explode. Like, you know, the, the companies that give me sponsorships could just decide they're not doing it anymore. Like there, there are a lot of things that are just completely unstable. And so I kind of try to not be too dependent on any single one of them, but it's, uh, it, it's stressful sometimes. Well, you're building your, uh, you're building your personal brand. You're, you're doing the persona building uh, thing right <laughs> that is that is the goal you know hopefully if like if one of these platforms goes dead then i can like point people towards another one or that they can you know give me money on instead and that's just kind of 
you know you've got to play that game because the, none of these none of these platforms are forever one of the things i guess i'm like most curious about is what is the process of like building your own persona because obviously people say to be yourself people say that you need to like behave a certain way when you're on camera but there's an extent to which you have to take on certain affectations. Like you can't just like with me, like I don't talk this way in normal life, but I don't feel like I'm affected. Um, but then even right. if I'm like, if I'm writing, I'll have take on a slightly different voice depending on what it is I'm making. Um, you always want to kind of like portray yourself in a different light, depending on what the message is and what you're creating. But what has that become and what has that been for you? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great question because like, I don't, I don't feel like I am misrepresenting who I am in any way with videos, but it is like a very specific part of of who I am just in terms of like what's what I think is watchable and what I want like my tone to be. And so like some things were intentional where like the first essay I ever made was about like organizing and how you should, you know, maybe pull out your boss's teeth if they're like exploiting you and it was like that was intentional it's like i never want people to be confused about my politics i never want to have, be like oh surprise he's a leftist yeah. like you know i i wanted all that to be very open but like i don't know i i feel like the the version of me that youtube gets is when i am uh when i have met someone at a party and and discovered that they have like a small amount of interest <laughs> in a topic that I have like a vast knowledge of, which usually at a party is like the Mission Impossible movies or something. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what's the most entertaining I could make the, like the monologue that I give them, you know? And yeah. so it's like it's 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 very scripted and whatever. And it is honest, but it's just kind of like I'm always going to be kind of the you know, enthusiastic. I really like I'm dying to tell you this. Uh, this this is the kind of like, you know, th this is the, the most positive and exciting I can be about something or, you know, if not positive, at least like engaged. Um, but that's, you know, there's uh, there is certainly a lot of my life that I am just kind of uh, <laughs> not not nearly that high energy or engaged I have a, in things. a similar experience with that but it's completely isolated to pinball because i uh i'm sure josh knows but i i wrote a book about pinball and even before that i was very passionate about pinball and there's a large piece of real estate in my brain that's just dedicated to pinball uh knowledge and activity and it's to the point where i i frequently think about how i no longer can see the world as someone who knows less about pinball if i see something that tangentially reminds me of the things that I, I know about pinball or 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 find an opening in a completely normal human conversation uh, unrelated to pinball then just that synapse in my brain will start screaming to like uh hit that switch on the tracks it's like do you think do you think they're game do you think they're all game to talk about some <laughs> pinball right now but i feel like with you also zach there's that there's just a lot of fringe aesthetics and fringe topics that you're just you have that encyclopedic knowledge for. And like, I think you're kind of the go-to guy for that kind of thing, right? Like Funland, um, which is the, the zine that Zach started and is now under Superculture. Some really great essays about games in there as well. Check them out. Um, but you started an Instagram and it like, 
it started blowing up just because of the images that you find are just like so I, I don't I want they're strange you know like I'm like where are you, where do you people find this stuff because I'm always I've been really into these Instagram accounts you know like gamer dump or like final form have you seen have you guys seen I've these? seen gamer dump yeah they're just <laughs> yeah they're great um they they do the thing that's popular now on Instagram where they'll post like six photos at a time in slides and they all each have like a sort of aesthetic theme. Um, but it's, it's a really neat thing. And I'm always just like, how are these people finding this imagery? Like where? Wait, okay. As someone who's not familiar with gamer dump, I mean, I'm looking it up right now, but tell me what is, what is the aesthetic that they're posting? Photos of game stuff from like the late nineties, early two thousands, a lot of game ads, a lot of E3 and Tokyo game show photos. Mine focused more on like official or semi-official video game art, and I'll give away the game a little bit. My chief strategy was to go onto uh, MobyGames.com and hit the little random thing <laughs> in the corner. You know, the, I'm feeling lucky of games, and like if the cover looked cool, download it, put it into the folder. If it didn't, hit the random button again. And if it felt very promising that I might like look up the publisher or developer and see like what other kooky box art did you put out for like the ZX Spectrum or something. It's been, it's been really interesting to watch this stuff evolve too because the gamer aesthetic has blossomed out blossomed out so much more from just being like 8-bit like N64 low poly stuff into like you get the the cool Japanese box art aesthetic, the fan art anime adjacent aesthetic. You get the funky uh, box art of the 80s aesthetics that I think Funland <laughs> catered to really well. Uh, there's like magazine ad scans from the 90s that are super grungy and blown out. And I, I think looking at these Instagrams is just it's neat because I can see where these different tendrils of game art are going and it gains just like a certain amount of respectability just from exterior audiences who might not know that much about games just because the imagery speaks so much to culture at large. I think like a lot of culture is becoming a lot more accepting of that type of imagery, or at least it's not as, I guess, like. Yeah. And, and, or with just like the filter of nostalgia, it's like, it's kind of softened a little bit where it's like, you don't have to be into present nerdy stuff you can just appreciate the past and it's like maybe you think it looks cool maybe you think it was goofy but like the fact that it's not happening now i think means it's a little it's a little easier to take in yeah we're, we're all adults now right none of us are like tugging on daddy's shirt begging him to care about a pokemon this is all now like a shared cultural history that we have and even if you know it's not the game that's uh striking with them the hardest it's it's something of like a strange familiar history of like reading magazines in the back of the family road trip car or something uh, on top of the Moby game stuff. I, uh, I've been just like, especially in the process of making fun line, I really pillared through the uh, gaming Alexandria scans and definitely interesting seeing like international magazines and their treatment of games and how advertising advertisements for those evolved or like, especially for games that never ended up coming out. Um, in Funland, I, I like in an attempt to sort of recreate a simulacra of all that. I, I commissioned artists to create fake magazine ads for games they made up. Uh, some pretty delightful effect. 
uh, Garrett Young's uh, hemorrhoid journey still. I don't know. That piece is just it's a beautiful it's a beautiful piece for a beautiful game that sadly doesn't exist. I'm really looking forward to in like, I don't know, 10 years or so when like the kind of 2005 era game informers are now like the thing that people are kind of putting through their nostalgia filters on Instagram, because that's, you know, that would that was my like growing up thing. And I just have some I remember the other day just like had a random like there is a game called WTF that stood for work time fun on the Nintendo DS. And I just remember like seeing ads for that in Game Informer in like 2006 and being like one day. Someone's going to tweet about that and be like, can you believe they made this game? I don't think you're going to have to wait very long. I mean, some of the some of these kids these days, it seems like everything uh, circa 2005 and before is in play fashion wise. It's only a matter of time before like those the, the, the nostalgia peaks, even for stuff that like we more closely affiliate with like Homestar Runner era Internet. I do also just think like culture is accelerating and and so is nostalgia and so it's just like the cycles get shorter and shorter where people are like uh remember when they made real movies and it's a picture of like a movie that came out in 2017 like it's just... yeah for shark tale <laughs> I, it's one of the weird kind of i've been doing uh a lot of shopping for furniture for a new place so i'm buying a lot of used stuff and you know you you go to garage sales you see a bunch of things that people have on sale and the the games that people have on sale on this thing are are nuts like so many people selling ps2s but looking at like how much of a difference there is in some generations of console versus other is is really interesting because like the nostalgia kind of seems to skip some generations in some ways like for instance the 3DS has a lot of really high value games and like getting 3DS stuff is kind of difficult, but the Wii U is like, you could get a Wii U for 20 bucks used. Like right. Nobody cares about their Wii U's, but I'm holding on to a copy of Rhythm Thief that apparently is worth like 200 bucks now or something like that. It's a very highly in demand game. Um, and it's also just weird to see how a lot of culture from that time has decayed and how like what's remained and what hasn't and what's like rare uh obviously silent hill is one of those games that's really difficult to find right now and when i'm looking on when i'm looking on facebook marketplace like you cannot i cannot find any survival horror games i'm like what did these people do are they all just in a dumpster that hollywood video or GameStop throughout 20 years ago like what happened to all the survival horror games in the wild like that's not a real question but it's kind of a real question <laughs> well my answer to that real or not real question is yeah I did buy a lot of used games from like Blockbuster's exit pile yeah um, including you know my prized clay fighter sculptor's cut which you could only get <laughs> from that you know two week period of time when Blockbuster was dumping old games um I had a weird nostalgia moment for like when one of the local blockbusters was closing for good. And uh, my friend whose brain had been so warped by like our circle of friends didn't know how to say NHL other than Chell. So they were just subjecting this poor, you know, about to be permanently fired blockbuster clerk with like, do you have Chell 11? Is Chell 11 still here? Do you have any copies of Chell 11 I could buy? 
And I'm just looking dumbfounded before I just like knock my friend on the shoulders. Like, I don't think he knows what that means. I <laughs> <laughs> speak to him like he isn't someone you smoke weed in the backyard with like three times a week. And uh, with that, I want to cut us off of the first nostalgia conversation um, so that we can <laughs> dive headfirst into the second nostalgia conversation. I guess nostalgia adjacent, which is uh, Jacob, like you recently put out a video about uh, Zelda. And do you want to give a little bit of a, the gist of like what the video was about and what your research entailed and what the process of making it was? Sure. Yeah. So so the video, I mean, the title kind of, you know, it's it's a fairly descriptive title for this one, which is just every Zelda is the darkest Zelda. Um, and the idea being kind of I mean, the 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 idea stemmed from just like real conversations that I have seen happen online where people talk about what is the darkest Zelda game? And they all kind of have you know like obviously majora's mask is so apocalyptic and like oh twilight princess is is dark and gritty but even something like wind waker has these kind of disturbing elements of like a a society covered by a flood or breath of the wild is post-apocalyptic or whatever um and so it was part just talking about that which i think is kind of interesting for a big nintendo series to have a series of very popular games that all have like, you know, fairly dark either text or subtext within them. And also why, you know, the, the kind of larger idea of why do people care that things are dark? Like, why do kids like dark media and why do adults kind of obsess over painting the media that they liked? as dark you know all, all of the kind of fan theories about like oh the rugrats are all actually dead or you know finding nemo is a is a grief hallucination which which i find you know completely kind of pointless and and uh, you know missing the point of critical analysis but i you know i think they're kind of connected in in the the weight and importance that we assign to darkness and then like I don't know why we do that. Um, and so it is, you know, it, it it's a good kind of my brand of video because it both can get kind of nitty gritty about games, but also larger kind of philosophical ramblings on our relationship with media. What I'm about to say may sound insulting, but I earnestly <laughs> do not mean it. I do feel like taking existing, you know, media properties or whatever and either imagining them as like, the most happy-go-lucky positive version possible or the opposite end of the spectrum, like the gritty dark version is just like the laziest form of creativity. But that's also why it's so commonplace. Like the fact of the matter is not everyone is a, is well-versed and well-exercised uh, in their creative yeah, skills. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's just kind of a version of fan fiction like mm -hmm. a lot of these things have kind of come from like creepy pastas or whatever where someone was just like what if i could make spongebob fucked up you know and then they write that story that's something that you know rocco's modern life probably wasn't gonna do on its own uh that's <laughs> right. like that's like your personal spin <laughs> on it and you you can you can find it for just about everything out there 
Yeah. And I think I mean, one of the things that I get into the video that I think is kind of, you know, it's like I'm fine with people just kind of having fun and doing this. But I think one of the one of the dangers is that like you you also kind of mutate the audience by talking about that of being like yeah sure you know kids watched rugrats but they didn't get rugrats you know if if it's like if it has these kind of like super dark subtexts or whatever and so ultimately you know the the point of the video ends up being like darkness is not a narrative you know like that's not you can't you cannot solely exist on that and there has to be more there and you know generally i think that zelda games do have more there and so mm-hmm. it, it they make a good example of kind of like the dark but how that can't be the only thing you're doing the nintendo game i affiliate with this phenomenon most is actually uh and you know i i participated in this too when i was like in university as well as earthbound mm-hmm. the the legacy of earthbound is so interesting because despite the fact that the game is only like truly menacing and intimidating for maybe two and a half minutes um that is overemphasized like if you were just to listen to the fan base alone which i think a lot of earthbound fans did i think if, uh, it's got disproportional amount of people who love the game and never actually played it uh which is fine again this is all fine but if you listen to the audience alone you'd think that earthbound is like this extremely menacing and and darkly subversive piece of pop culture when in for the most part you're like asking a, a dog on a skateboard with sunglasses uh, for directions. <laughs> and then he gives you a big lollipop. Uh, yeah, I mean, but I think that it I, it speaks to like that it is really powerful when something kind of zags in that direction. Like, I think Earthbound is way better for doing that darkness. And it just kind of speaks to our limited ability to talk critically about things that like that ends up being 80 percent of the conversation but like if earthbound didn't have that i don't think it would have you know the same staying power because like being a kid and kind of stumbling into something that it feels like this doesn't feel kid oriented anymore is like a kind of cool and exciting feeling yeah i mean but when you're a kid most specifically as an adult i i when they added uh, Earthbound to, like, the Nintendo Switch Online thing, I kind of felt more impacted by, like, the bittersweet moments or, mm-hmm. or, or, or you know, the, the more complex sort of emotional responses that aren't, you know, 100% happy or 100% as sad. And uh, not to say that anything, any one emotion is more interesting than the other, but it is, again, because darkness and grit is such a default reaction from people who just aren't talented writers it's it's a strong example of why earthbound can be like emotionally powerful all the time and frequently without having to resort to like traumatic instances why those right why those those monstrous things are only like sometimes thing 90 percent of the time it's like happy and cheery blended with like pang hurtful pangs of nostalgia and and like a game about the perspective of a child on the world. Uh, it was added to Game Pass, so I recently played Omori, which is one of the... A game that people are constantly telling me to play, but I have yeah. not actually played yet. There's a lot of games like Descendants of Earthbound, and this one feels the most like a true response to a lot of the themes of Earthbound. So if Earthbound is like an RPG designed to be from the like 
perspective of a child, but also has some spooky, subversive moments. This is like an RPG responding directly to that thread and kind of completes it where... Uh, I don't know how you feel about spoilers, but I'll, I'll try to keep it vague as possible. Um, there's there's sort of two sides of the game. One where you're playing a very Earthbound style like RPG with you and all your friends encountering strange creatures and funny aliens and going on silly random little quests. And then kind of a flip side that reveals, you know, like what's, what's really going on and kind of more sobering... Uh, like the two sort of respond to each other and Mm -hmm. um while there's a lot of games in the world that are like in the key of earthbound but taking things to like a darker and meaner place this one is certainly you know has bleak and depressing moments but it's not it feels more like a response to those moments in earthbound instead of just its own vanity wishful thinking kind of project that's good because honestly like similar to to uh people only talking about the dark moments in earthbound the recommendations for me to play omori have have largely been kind of with that like oh man there's some dark stuff that happens in this game and it has kind of (laughs) scared me off of it a little bit because it's like i don't want to play one of those games so your your telling of it is actually much more compelling uh than than the other pitches that i've heard it's not just doing the dark stuff to do the dark stuff because it enjoys doing the dark stuff it does feel like it is more critically engaging uh Mm -hmm. with that kind of like you know rpg from a child's point of view made by depressed adults right there's this i mean this conversation is massive right like and that's what i think I, I really liked about this video as I was watching it, Jacob, like it just felt super, I don't know. Some video essays to me feel like when, as they unfurl, there's kind of some stretching going on or there's a little bit too much elucidation happening on points that don't necessarily need it. But it felt like as you were kind of unraveling each thread, it made a lot of sense, like as it came in. And when you got to the point where, when you made the point that you made here, which is that, you know, the, this impulse to kind of make, media darker than it really is um is kind of in some ways lazy and in a lot of ways less interesting than what's actually happening if you're critically engaging with something which to me is like the kind of thing where you would read that in an essay format on some website in a a take or something where it's just kind of tossed off offhand is like yeah i really hate just how this game thinks it's like so cool and how dark it is and stuff like that and someone would just like write you off as just a cynical curmudgeon or something like that who just doesn't like fun and who doesn't like this like right this speculation on fiction and people engaging with the text more but it's like it's one of those things where you really have to build step by step to reach that point in a way that doesn't make you look like an asshole right but Mm -hmm. and that being said the video is like what 40 minutes long or something like that yeah it's it's a lengthy one do you feel like you need to put that much work into like unfurling this argument or as you're doing this do you feel like it's just kind of happening organically and you're just you're writing it all out and it and the way it you know you play it as it lies as it were yeah i do i mean for this one there are i've done a couple of videos where i am essentially trying to critically deal with something that I 
really like or do myself. And so for this video, it was really important to establish that I do not look down on people who enjoy like dark media and dark kids media because this stuff meant a lot to me as a kid. And I like talking about it now. You know, it's like like Twilight. I make the point of kind of Twilight Princess's darkness was, I think, one of the reasons that it spoke to me so much when I first played it. Um, and so, yeah, especially if I am, you know, kind of being being critical about something that is not just like bad politics or whatever, I do want to kind of walk people there in a way that shows that I am not, you know, like condescending. And I have kind of dealt with a lot of the same things that all of the people who like this probably do. Um, and so, yeah, for this one, the the kind of structure of like, let's start why talking about why it's good, why it's impactful. And then here's kind of the where where this sort of analysis or this sort of, you know, tone can fall apart uh, was was very intentional, because I think if I started with just saying like, hey, icebergs are a dumb way of looking at media, <laughs> then like people would kind of check out. But, yeah. you know, but if I walk them there, then then they'll stick around. Yeah. And it, that's why I, I was watching the video like this. Just it just feels like such a natural way of diving into this. And part, it's, it's hard to tell whether it's because of like the, the way you crafted it or just that's just how this thing unfurls. But it was it's a great video, by the way. For all the oh, thank all you, the thank bad podcast yeah. listeners, you check this out. It's a banger. As are a lot of Jacob's videos. Go check them out. YouTube dot. We'll, we'll, we'll plug you. We'll plug later. Um, but <laughs> you just you just type Jacob Geller and it'll it'll get you there. There you go. There you go. Um, next, I want to let's go into the the regular weekly segment of uh, what we've been playing. Has anybody? Does anybody feel like they have a marquee game to talk about this? this week because i've been playing stuff that's like a, a little older but it's pretty relevant but if you're all playing i've also i've also been playing um some older stuff how do, where are y'all on vr do you do you have takes on it i like vr quite a bit and i have like a vr adjacent thing to discuss today as well but i've played like half-life alex and i have a an oculus rift s i have no fancy gear I've I've enjoyed it when I played it others. So my my thoughts on VR are much more macro. It constantly feels like you know, an ambitious for certain futurists and tech weirdos to pin their hopes on, but is difficult to imagine being engaged with by the general public, especially after Facebook decided like you, we got to crank up the prices by another hundred bucks on these things. Um, it's yeah, that weird weird choice. I mean, I assumed you know I I think they are selling them at a loss and probably still are but it's like this isn't the direction to go um i have been playing a game for the past uh, couple weeks called until you fall which is a vr game that's been around for a while but i think still isn't quite 1.0 um that is uh, a sword fighting game um and the one of the things that is cool about vr is the process of getting better at the games feels much more like getting better at something in real life than it does uh, at playing a video game, because, you know, when you're sword fighting in VR, you are 
holding up swords and waving them around and using them to block and stuff. And so this is kind of a, a roguelike and there, there are some kind of random elements, but really it's just like a run based game and they're like 30 minute runs. And after trying and failing many, many times, I finally beat the final boss on the like medium difficulty this week. So it was very exciting for me. Okay. It looks, it has like a sort of metal gear rising or vengeance looking deal where you're like you got to line up your slashes with the corresponding yes, yes. slash so it, angle you know the the enemy essentially has a level of guard that you have to break and then once you break that you have these specific directions that you're cutting uh to do damage and and you have you have a sword in both hands generally and so there are some that like do increased damage if you're alternating hands that you attack with and then sometimes you know one of your hands has like a big slow axe and the other has a dagger and so you can block things with the quick dagger and then attack with the axe uh but really it's just like the process of skill building feels so distinct from other stuff that for games like this that are meant to just kind of tap into the roguelike kind of experience of getting better i i just find them enormously compelling because it feels like i'm getting better at like a sport or something i had this feeling with esports stuff a lot i mean as as one might assume like playing league of mm -hmm. legends i got that a lot where i'm like i am getting better at this thing the more i play it and i it's translates into like my rank and the things that I'm able to do where when I started I would see people do this and I would be very impressed by it and like now I'm able to do it myself in a way that's like very much measurable because I literally just watch myself do it or have a clip of myself doing it etc etc with VR one of my things is like obviously it's it's all about immersion and like pulling you into the game because you're like literally all of your field of view is taken up by what's happening in the game. But I, I wonder about like the controls itself because as I've played VR in the past, I think the closest I'll get to feeling like immersed in the action is when I'm like shooting guns or like reloading a gun, I think is the most, probably one of the most satisfying or firing a bow yeah those have to be two of the most satisfying things to do in vr just because they feel so one-to-one -one in a very satisfying way but mm -hmm. everything else is like i mean firing a gun and stuff like the the thing is shaped like a gun i think that's why it translates so well but like when you're swinging a sword it's like you you feel like you're swinging around a controller you know there's something about it that doesn't right that they don't there's not that level of like resistance or weight that you would want or it's just everything kind of feels like a lightsaber basically that it just passes through everything you know instantly there, yeah there's like a there's there's a certain threshold where in the process of translating input into uh whatever its corresponding action is right like if i'm pressing the a button to jump or if i'm pressing the x button to slash my sword um there's there's a gap between like the act of pressing a button and doing that thing in real life. And in VR, it's like, theoretically, you're closing that gap a bit by having to slash around some thing that you, baton that you have in your hand. But because it doesn't have weight, like there's still quite a big gap there and it doesn't close it as much as you would assume or that you would imagine based on like 
the fact that you are actually moving your arm around, you're still you're still kind of feel like you're waggling in some ways. And there is there's still a lot of sus- suspension of disbelief that has to occur there to the point where I feel like the main draw of VR is still the visual aspect of it as opposed to the control aspect. I don't know if you agree with that. It's a really good. I mean, one of the things that I like about VR now is how in process it feels do uh, you know, I, I've kind of been it's a little frustrating to me that controls are so standardized for basically every kind of uh, flat screen big game that comes out that just like we know how a first person shooter plays and we know how like a melee, you know, third person action game plays. And and the the feeling that VR hasn't quite worked it out yet makes it feel janky but it also frequently you know i will play something and be like oh that's a way that you can represent this that i hadn't thought of before and you know it's like like pressing x to swing a sword does not there are a lot of tricks that games use to make pressing x feel good and i think that vr will eventually develop those and and you know there are different games that are working on it in different ways i think that in some ways the controls are are my favorite part just because of how i mean and a lot of it is reloading it's it's aiming with iron sights it's doing the things that you talked about where just like guns feel great but also it's just stuff like i i am i'm quoting myself from a video but like the the best vr games don't really feel like they have mechanics. They just have things you can do. Mm-hmm. And so when you can, you know, kind of like have extra inventory by just balancing a grenade, like, you know, in your hand as you walk forward <laughs> is something that you just can't do in a game on a controller because like there is no control for that. Yeah. But having having the kind of flexibility of being a human with arms I think it is is very different. It feels like a very new experience. And so I am totally with you that the um, it feels kind of strange still and they're still working out the kinks. But I am excited in the direction that it's going. That's one of those things where the, it has those internal kind of chemistry engines that made speaking of Zelda, but um, Breath of the Wild feel so good where um, and I think a lot of uh, Kojima games, too are really good at this Mm -hmm. where they have that like internal logic of like, it just feels like you can do something and it will interact in a novel way. I guess they've called it emergent systems. And there's an extent to which that translates almost directly in VR that makes the medium really exciting, but that is very difficult to create for, especially in a form that is still in its early stages. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, obviously it's like, Half-Life Alex is still just kind of unsurpassed in that regard where like if a head crab is jumping at you, you can just like grab the chair next to you and like use it to keep it away from you in yeah. just this way that's like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even think about that. I just did it. But building that level of interactivity into the world, I think, is expensive and hard and so valve has done it but uh not many other studios have really attempted that what's something you want to do in vr but it doesn't feel like vr has given to you yet i mean the the act (laughs) 
<laughs> the act of like lifting something heavy. I really wish there was some way of doing that. Like, you know, you know, the Dark Souls animation that has been around for like five games of just opening a door that weighs like a thousand pounds where your character just very slowly pushes open those two doors. <laughs> I want to like do that. But since there's no resistance, you just kind of go like that and your hands shove through the door. I think the other easy answer is uh, just walking or moving around in space. Yeah. Because that's like that's very difficult to do. And it would seem to be one of the necessary things to get right. But it's just it hasn't happened yet because you can get. Motion I will say just... the the most maybe the most incredible kind of single experience I've had in VR is with this game. There are two of them, but it's uh, it's Lone Echo um, is the game. And then there's a multiplayer one called Echo Arena. But the the thing of that game is you're essentially in a space station and it's all zero gravity. And that sounds like it would be more nauseating. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's not because what you do is just grab parts of the ceiling or wall and like pull or push yourself off them. And since in zero gravity, nothing would really have resistance. Mm -hmm. It works perfectly like it completely translates. And so it's like if they just put all VR games in zero G locomotion solved like we, we did it. I, I mean, this is actually a pretty good segue if you if you don't want to um, if you ha have nothing else to say about VR for the time being. Oh, go yeah, go ahead. But I've been playing this game called Not for Broadcast. I'm not sure if you all have heard of that. I'm looking it up. That's the uh, one where you like are an assistant producer on a on a I've heard news of this. Feed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you are you're producing a news show and you have to, you know, run commercials. You have to like choose what camera angle is being uh, fed into the live feed. And it's it's kind of in the vein of uh, a lot of these. kind. I call them interface games, but I don't know if that's what they're called but no codes uh stories untold has was really big on this and then their follow-up to that observation both great games that i really love uh and then i think the the, the og of these is probably five nights at freddy's or something like that mm -hmm. where you're you're monitoring cameras and experiencing survival horror on that level but this game is uh taking it in, in an interesting direction because you are involved with the news and shaping public opinion through visuals and direction uh so you can be focusing on like what someone says and you, you actually uh the mechanics of the game are that you need to switch between the angles so like you need to make sure that you're always focused on the person who's talking cut from uh shot to shot uh bleep out words if they curse um you need to like choose which commercials play during the broadcast uh, there's a lot of these details that I could I'm still kind of early in the game, but I could see them subverting later on. I, I imagine they will do this later where I'm forced to to make the decision as to whether or not I should play the, a political advertisement. Uh, I've already kind of experienced this thing where I have to there's an ad for a children's toy that's like being recalled. And one of our commercials is for that toy. And there's like a sticky note on the vhs that i'm supposed to put in there that's like should we play this it's been like hurting people apparently so i think that will kind of unfurl over time but 
it's a great idea for a game, something that I think would work very well in VR. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm thinking of a few things as I play this game, first of which is this interface game thing. Do either of you have experience with any of these games? Have you played a no-code game at all? Sorry, no-code, the people who made, like, um, Stories the Untold. House one? Yeah, yeah Stories, Stories Untold and then um, Observation. I did play Stories Untold. Okay. Yes. I've played, um, what is Gareth Damien Martin's first game in other waters in other waters yes yeah also an interface game yes I would say, that though, is kind true. of a different I context did, i didn't and, even uh, bring that up i would say time. i would say her story is also another interface game yep yeah 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 and then like all the and other this one not for broadcast ones. is it's also uh it's it's like uh real real people yes it's like fmv film, it's full motion okay yeah <laughs> so you are actually monitoring live feeds of broadcasts that are taped it has that kind of like community theater vibe that i would say like her story and the the sam barlow joints have um Mm -hmm. but it's it's charming in its in its way i think they're all very cognizant of the fact that this is a video game and they're not trying to put on like oscar worthy performances this one is it's funny so it's not burdened by that like needing to carry this emotional Mm -hmm. trauma and like intense weight but it does kind of take it there with its satire, which I've been impressed by so far. Um, I'm not really sure how it's going to play out. But what I did so, find... So you're saying like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Currently, it's not a very like didactic game? Yeah, no. It, it doesn't feel like it's being preachy or that it has anything hyper-specific to say just yet. It feels like there's potential for it to be nuanced. Again, I don't know if it's going to actually play out that way in the long term. But I, I like that there. it feels like there is that space there because a lot of games lack that. Uh, but it's funny, and which is a great is it, baseline. Um, is it challenging to keep up with? Or is the, you know, do they kind of want you to get through the scenarios? So that's what I find kind of weird about this game so far is that I'm playing like the there's different difficulties at the start. There's like five or six different, which is already telling me something, right? Like, and the lowest difficulty is yeah, story. five or six. That, that's a lot. Yeah, I think real. it's like four, maybe five. Mm-hmm. But that's still it, it. When I saw the screen, yeah, I was like, that, that's a lot of difficulties for a game like this. But it's the story one is like the audience is very generous. Like your ratings don't go down that much. And there's there's it's actually monitoring how, quote, well you are running this broadcast. So I was a bit surprised that it actually cares about this. There's actually modes that you can play this game on that are like more difficult to do, which is just funky to me conceptually. Is it, is it like Guitar Hero where they start booing you when you're showing the wrong camera angle? <laughs> there's a big meter at the top of the screen that literally is like it goes from red to green based on how well so it's going. And if your ratings are going down, the arrow goes down. It's <laughs> so like if you fail to bleep out some of the words or if you don't change camera angles quickly enough it'll get mad at you but that's a that's kind of at odds with some of the satire of this game i feel but at the same time like this game is doing some really interesting things where if you switch up the feed to show someone on the screen you'll see that off screen in your like adjacent feeds because i don't know if you know how broadcasts work but you'll have like a bunch of different cameras and you can see all them at any given moment because you're the one who's directing the whole thing and you can just decide which one of those cameras shows in the live feed at any given moment. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it, it's always clear that there's stuff happening on a lot of the other feeds, even if you are not showing it on the live feed. So after the broadcast, you can go back and look at your quote rushes, which I am uh, supposing is an industry word, but, um, you can go in and look at what was happening in those feeds when you weren't looking. And a lot of the times you'll hear kind of like private conversations that people are having, um, just in like a downtime between being on camera. Uh, so you get a bit of that behind the scenes vibe. So there's this kind of pulling back the curtain vibe that the game gets that again, feels like it's kind of at odds with what's happening in the game, which is like run a show and get a high score. Cause it actually like, grades you on this stuff. <laughs> right. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, my time in TV land was uh, mostly limited to running beta tapes to the basement editors and uh, stealing Katy Perry's lunch. So I don't know how reflective the game is of that. That's uh, more interesting than my local news experience, which is... <laughs> they I should would... make a game about that. Steal Katy Perry's lunch. <laughs> yeah, well, look, uh, her entourage had blocked off the staff kitchen where I left the chicken roti and... Then I ended up in a elevator with a craft table, and opportunity sort of knocked. I uh, <laughs> I made like I made like a quick comment that like there's a lot of sodi pop on that craft table, to which like the very exhausted woman pushing it responded, uh, "Katy Perry is a very thirsty woman," and <laughs> swiped a vitamin water and a chicken salad sandwich. At least she uh, had a sense of humor about it. Looking, and uh, yeah, I mean Katy Perry could probably cry herself a new vitamin. Well, she didn't see me steal the stuff, but to, to, you know, I'm not exactly taking this one to the grave. But uh, look, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, uh, eye for an eye, lunch for a lunch. Uh, it's It was good chicken roti, too. It was re- it was a, it's one of those leftover meals that you, like, walk into the office really. Like, that's what you're excited to do for the day is get that leftover uh, roti you stashed in the fridge the day before. We all have something like that. So um, sure. Uh, Anyways, that TV channel doesn't even exist anymore, so it's not like, and it's not like I had any chance of being rehired. It's, it's CTV Sci-Fi now, R.E.P. the Space Channel. I've also been playing the Stanley Parable, um, Ultra Deluxe. Have either of you played that? At all? Oh yeah, I yes I yes I have. I I am digging it quite a lot. Um, so this is now post beginner's guide. We live in a has has Davy Reedon done anything between those? I don't think so, right? This is kind of the big fall. No. He's he's working on something new, yeah, now, but but nothing officially released. I didn't wasn't the biggest fan of the original Stanley Parable. Loved the beginner's guide and really like Stanley Parable Ultra Deluxe despite it ostensibly being the same game in some ways. But that's the conversation question mark also question mark i i feel exactly the same way in in that i i played the stanley parable when it came out and thought like oh this is clever you know like in in 2011 i don't know whenever that game came out it was like this is this is cute i get the joke it's funny it's good and and this one i is just doing more than that joke and and I think the places that it goes are, are are so much more interesting than the places the original Stanley Parable were interested in going. Yeah, and th- I've I made the exact same observation, which is that this game feels like it's 
really reveling in the whole like fourth wall breaking nature of the game. Like that's what the whole first game is theoretically. So you're just you got a narrator who's just mm-hmm. talking right to you and telling you what to do and getting annoyed when you don't do it. Um, but it has it feels like it has more fun with that and it like it's just more interesting in exploring the possibilities of that and taking you to new places and serving as almost like an adventure game with the quote new content as opposed to just using it to deliver these like long-winded speeches and presenting you with these like kind of it felt like the original stanley parable was just like a bunch of thought exercises and philosophical exercises whereas this one feels like it's taking me places and having fun with it but it's not losing it's not making me ask any less questions i'm just like having more fun experiencing them you know i i think there's a lot more interest in this one in kind of delving into abstract spaces um you know, like it's it's funny. I actually I talked to on on MinMax. We interviewed uh, William Pugh, perhaps so some of the other designers, because this is not just, you know, we shouldn't right, right, just right. call it a Davy Reed and joint because I think this one was much more collaborative. Right, right, right. Um, but, um, you know, we talked to them about like the, the beginner's guide was kind of before the whole like liminal space craze and and is very much in that genre but what i enjoy about this one is that they are they are going into much more kind of out there places you know especially in the kind of new content you're in these like big weird modernist rooms and and locations and kind of all this weird stuff and and so it's yeah i i really you know it's like even though the game still has just like jokes, you know, it has jokes that it will tell you. But the the framing for those jokes is kind of weirder than the original game did in a in a way that I really enjoy. What do you think is like, you know, this is coming from someone who hasn't played the new one yet. But what do you think is like benefited both of you more this new one? Is it is it the additional content or is it the years in our exhausted withered psyches no i i don't think i mean because it's like the whole game the whole original game is in there um like Mm -hmm. you can there's a big door that says extra content and if you don't walk through that door then it's just the same game and like it's still fine but i i think you know as um as josh said the questions the new questions that this one is asking i think are just more interesting yeah and i think there's something about the the way that this engages with its whole meta nature that is just better to me also like it's not as obsessed with i i feel like at the time 2013 the whole postmodern, like what is art like are we what are you experiencing right now what is the nature of it <laughs> let's talk about it for a while it, it was fun and it was doing its thing and i think that's what what it was based on and what gave it its angle and the beginner's guide kind of expanded on it and made it feel more personal. And it was like less obsessed, less obsessed with just asking the bigger question than like providing a novel and human experience in a lot of ways. This one feels like it's in that space too. And I think a side effect of the way that this, these games work where they're asking these questions about the questions and, about the medium it's delivering its message to you through 
the nice consequence of that is that like it kind of feels like it's setting up this fiction within itself where it can kind of take you anywhere and it'll make sense, which is a sense that I don't get from a lot of games, period. And because of that, like this, this game does take you places like it goes there. And uh, Jacob, I don't know if I mean, you I'm sure you saw this, but like it takes you to other games. Mini spoiler, yeah. which was th- that was in the original Stanley Parable, but but yeah, they're actually they're different other games that you go to in this one. Wait, what other games did it, the original one take you to? I I think you not to put you on the spot, but Minecraft. I I think um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, okay, there were some things where it's like because this one released on all consoles, the um, the the like licensing I think was um was a nightmare to get those different games because they had to be games that you could play on like <laughs> switch and playstation and xbox <laughs> oh okay no you went to god you went to portal in one of them jeez oh, yeah minecraft portal were the were the two and then but yeah and the new one they're different and I also I think they're the ones you go to in this are very funny uh like yes we should we should bring back the uh the soul caliber three style of like console exclusivity so like one you get to go to the legend of zelda but on the <laughs> xbox one you get to go to spawn world we uh, we literally in in the interview with william Pugh, like we literally asked them about that concept and they basically <laughs> said that like working with any of these publishers was so fucking annoying that like (laughs) like the idea of doing that for like three separate ones they would have just died ski free it is (laughs) i mean the place that this game takes you like they're theoretic they're just as interesting in my opinion but um the last thing i want to talk about for what i've been playing is like i got i brought this up at the beginning of the episode but i got a new monitor right this is a this is a thing that people have been doing that I kind of, I didn't know what to think about it. And now I've done it myself and my mind is like absolutely blown, which is that I got a 48 inch OLED 4k TV and I'm using that as my monitor. So you, you don't see it on this, but this is a huge screen. So it's and good you are for because I, you know, like, I work. I how can't. how close to it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just how do I look? I am like three feet away from this thing. I my mom would be pissed if I was a child right now. First off, <laughs> you look great, Zach. First of all, it makes work easy in a lot of ways because like I had two monitors before, which made sense. But then I'm like, what if I just had one really big monitor? And you could totally do that, and that's what I'm doing. But I also want to say that playing video games on this screen is it's absolutely transformed the experience of playing a game for me. Like <laughs> I I have prohibited myself from using the word immersion in a lot of cases, but this is just so hey, you immersive. Just, you just like you it's bought VR nuts. for yourself with a big TV. <laughs> it's it's almost like I've played games in VR. I have an Oculus. This is in some ways even more immersive than that visually. I was playing um, Mundan and this game, it's like a black mm-hmm. and white game, but 
because the TV takes up like my whole field of view and I'm playing it in freaking 4K on an OLED screen, it's like I can't fathom how good this shit looks. Like I I was playing Stray. I was playing Stray. I, we talked about Stray on this podcast two weeks ago. I am not a very big fan of Stray, okay? But I, I was playing this on this screen the other night and I was just like, this is amazing. I'm, I have a whole new appreciation for the art. It feels like an entirely different experience. It's like, I guess when you listen to some auto audio file speaker for the first time and you're just like getting it as it's meant to be listened to or something on like, and you're just listening to a vinyl record for the first time. And it feels like your ears are being opened to a whole new dimension of, of sensory experience. That's what's happening to me right now with this screen. <laughs> I know I'm getting like really into the weeds here with this stuff, but I can't, it's it's, I never thought I would feel this way about ha- like a, a screen, but that's what I'm feeling with this. Josh, this feels Thank like you. the beginning of like your own creepypasta story. Like, And every day, Josh sat a little closer to the screen. Yeah. And then one day, no one saw him <laughs> ever again. <laughs> when we were kids, weren't there like a hundred different commercials about like how it's bad to watch too much TV or sit too close to the TV screen? Whatever. They all seem to like vanish. Is it just like too important to our market structure that we're like looking at a screen for most hours of the day now okay in, de- in my so. defense okay oled screens have some of the <laughs> blackest black <laughs> levels oh. that you can achieve on a modern display okay these actually no legit though if you just have all the pixels black on this screen it looks like it's off because there's no backlight the pixels aren't like next, that, next time like we that. see Josh, he's going to be doing his own video drone. He's going to be like <laughs> pressing his face up against a giant pair of lips and holding uh, his VR wand up to his head and saying, long live the new flesh. I, I recently saw um, uh, I saw Nope in a uh, Dolby Atmos theater, which is hey, look great experience. Those theaters are nice, but it's like. It spends like 15 minutes of the trailer section just like congratulating itself on how good the screen is. <laughs> and it's saying the same. It's like, no, the screen wasn't turned off. This is just the power of Dolby Atmos. <laughs> and it like keeps going like that. <laughs> but now you're telling me that I could have that experience inside my very own home. Uh, uh, maybe maybe I'm sold. Apologies for this, you know, Canadian moment number 10, but uh, IMAX has started popping up in Canada <laughs> first before they went to the States. So we had like some of the older IMAX theaters here. And before any of those movies started, they also had like a little pre-show, like walking mm-hmm. you through what an IMAX was and be like, this is how large the screen is. And if you look closely, you can see the speakers and then like backlight behind the, the screen. So you could like see physically where the speakers, are. the speakers are over here. And then like a symphony noise, plays. the speakers are over here, the symphony noise over there. And then like the big one above and here just thunder. Did they do that? Like in the States? Oh, yeah. Ticket? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I'm so and glad I always felt that. like it's like I already bought the ticket. I'm in here. <laughs> like, you don't have to convince me that it's good. <laughs> Should they add like another thing of like a raise of hands if you've seen this shit before? <laughs> they wanted you to feel better about spending twenty five dollars on a movie ticket. <laughs> well, the real strategy is giving you no other option. I I have always been um, uh, kind of uh, 
kicking around the idea of getting like a big ultra wide has kind of been my like if I was to spend a bunch of money on a monitor. Um, but it's like the the challenge. And I, I bet you kind of had this thought before is like you don't really know how it's going to be until you just do it. So it's like I could I could get it. And it turns out it, I hate it. And I would have just spent a bunch of money on this or like my graphics card couldn't run games on it anymore or something but i i have i have played with the idea of uh doing some absurd thing with screens get this screen jacob i'm telling you it's it's well the thing the reason why the fact that it's a tv display it can be used as a monitor is like it actually has like 120 hertz refresh rate it has like zero millisecond response time not actually zero but it's very fast it's it's it works like a monitor it's just a tv screen so a lot of people are using this as a monitor but it's really good like i thought it was gonna be annoying but it's not it it's the shit it's the shit and video games i didn't think that i could have this feeling when it comes to i think the the reason why i'm freaking out about this so much is because like you remember when you like you went from P PlayStation 1 to PS2 or when you went from PS2 to PS3 to a lesser extent you it was that feeling of like mm -hmm. whoa like there's still so much potential for immersion in this medium and it's it just feels better to watch this that's what i, I this jump to this screen is like going from PS3 to PS6 it's it's the biggest jump I've felt since the PS2 to PS3 jump. But Josh, have you watched Twister on it yet? I mean, that's 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 where we we separate. The I watched a couple uh, TVs from the from the zoetropes. <laughs> I watched a couple anime clips in 4K, and then like those YouTube videos that are like Tokyo walk around Switzerland at midnight, you know, in the rain, 4K. Those are pretty cool too. Tokyo walk around Switzerland at midnight. <laughs> yeah, it just it seamlessly blends. Yeah, it seamlessly blends Japan and Switzerland. All that's to say, it's a great experience, and uh, you should check it out. Yeah, on my laptop, which is currently held together with Gorilla Tape, uh, I played uh, Garage Bad Dream Adventure. The um, the extremely hard to find Japanese game from like 1996 that was recently released uh, in English for the first time uh, this year. Uh, first on smartphones, which didn't seem like the ideal way to play this game, but finally on Steam about a month ago. Uh, and the Steam version, let me just say this, real nice port, buttery smooth. Uh, I feel like it's doing everything it should. But as far as what this game is, it's this sort of like surrealist nightmarish little horror game where you uh you you awaken to find that you are a grotesque looking little robot uh with a big pot belly uh everything's like shit brown it's like a it's like a it's like a piss world everything's rusted and metal um and to make things even more like cumbersome you and everyone else in this robot world can only maneuver around this like track on the ground like these little choo-choo train tracks uh, and that's how you sort of navigate around the entire space. Now, as like surreal and horrific as this world is, the gameplay itself is like 
actually pretty coherent. Like the whole like you're you're told you have to escape from this world, and this whole world revolves around you, the male robots, going fishing for frogs to catch the frogs to give to the lady robots. So. Uh, they can sort of, in their psychosexual way, put them in their tummies and turn them into uh, milk oil to keep all the other robots going. Um, so you have these sort of two different stamina bars. Wait, what's it called again? Uh, Garage, Bad Dream Adventure. And um, yeah, so on top of like trying to accomplish all the little tasks you give yourself, you also have to keep up your two stamina bars of ego and fuel. Uh and there's like multiple ways to get new fuel, but you have to like go around, catch uh, bait, which are like you put down crab traps to catch crabs, use the crabs to catch frogs. You can exchange the frogs and the crabs for money to get fuel or boost up your ego, which is your, your other stamina bar. But at the same time, slowly like finding parts and upgrades to help you uh, escape this this horrible little dimension you've awoke, you've uh, waken up in. Um, navigating it is pretty unique. Uh, it's all very, it's all like pre-rendered, uh, and looks very nice too. Um, but because like I said, you move along these tracks or twin rails, there's like an inner track and an outer track to most areas. And when you're on each track, the, the perspective flips. So keeping track of like which turns are taking you where can be a little confusing. You got to make very good and strategic use of that map. But I'm enjoying it a lot. It's 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 unique and strange, and surrealist without like becoming like completely obtuse. It might take a little bit just to get used to like how you navigate around the world on those two tracks. But once you get a feel for it uh, and get into the rhythm of like fishing and maintaining your ego and your fuel, uh, it, it reminds you a bit of like Moon Remix RPG in that way, where like part of the puzzle was like finding new ways to like find shortcuts or maintain your stamina. And in, in, in the way that game handled it, it didn't make it feel cumbersome. It made it feel like it made it explicitly feel like part of the challenge in a way that some games usually around like, you know, maintaining your weapons kind of fail. Like a lot of games where you have to maintain your weapons, it really sucks. It doesn't feel like something that's uh, adding to the joy of the experience. Whereas when it's a little bit more thoughtful, when, when maintaining these resources are like part of the puzzle you're simultaneously solving, uh, that that's that's more enriching. And uh, yeah, I didn't really know what to expect going into this game, like other than knowing it's like a like one of those uh, rare Japanese PC games from the ni late '90s. I think they only made three thousand copies of it. Initially. I was going to ask: Is this is this like? held in very high esteem in japan or is it more or less unknown there too i think it's unknown there too because they only printed three thousand copies of it right <laughs> no one no one got to fucking play it. it just became like so many games came out on whether it's playstation discs or pc discs uh it feels like the deepest well of like games yet to be discovered is still like the playstation one catalog and even more so the generally unpopular Japanese gaming PC gaming scene. Mm -hmm. Like PC gaming was so unpopular in Japan that a lot of PC games that came out uh, in America only came out on PlayStation in Japan, but also didn't come out on PlayStation uh, here. So there's like PlayStation exclusively PlayStation version of American PC games in Japan that never came out here. So 
the Neverhood never came out on PC. I mean, on PlayStation here. It did in Japan. And even more delightfully, and eh, I, I could get up and get it because I have it, but the Japanese version of Beavis and Butthead Virtual Stupidity for the PlayStation that only came out in Japan and absolutely has Japanese voiceovers for all the characters is another good example in which just like two Japanese comedians sort of like crudely try to recreate the semi-brain-fried Texas voices that uh, Beavis and Butthead had delightly, delightfully subjected us to over our many, many wonderful years. But yeah, the this port of Garage, however it ran initially, like it feels like it's running great. The people who did this port did a, a lovely little job. And if you love like really grimy and weird <laughs> vintage PC adventure games, this one this one feels like the real deal. It doesn't just feel like this curiosity. It feels like um, it feels like it even has more going on than some of the ones we hold up as classics, like uh, Bad Day on the Midway or Bad Mojo kind of uh, affairs. Um, I also played that Xbox Game Pass game, Escape Academy, and I'm just thinking about it now because, like, that's the whole game where the, the shtick is you're escaping these, you know, various escape rooms as part of, like, a university setting, but all the game made me feel is, like, most adventure games are already an escape room, and this is just an easier version of that because... I'm just in one room at a time and I can only interact with five objects. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been playing that game um, in kind of I, it does actually have, I think, even official couch co-op. But I have been playing the unofficial couch co-op where I'm just sitting next to my partner and we're both saying like, hey, how about you try yeah. this? And it's like, <laughs> that's fun. It's not hard. You know, it's not no. it's not uh, d super I haven't I haven't been like blown away by anything, but like it is a nice one of those games, particularly if someone isn't like super into games, but might be into more traditional puzzles. I do think that it, you know, they they don't operate on like game logic that much. They they do work with kind of like if you were good in an escape room, you could probably be good at this. Um, but it's yeah, it is. It is. uh exactly what it says on the tin i mean i don't like i'll say it's easy but i'm not gonna say it's bad because it feels like it's made for an audience somewhat younger than myself and somewhat younger mm -hmm. than ourselves to to dive into and that's the same reason i want just to clarify before when i was saying like the dark and gritty versions of pop culture stuff I, just because i'm saying like it's a less talented way to construct a story doesn't make me say like it's bad to enjoy that or engage with that because again uh it's just for a teenaged or teenage-minded audience and the fact that, you know, our culture or digital culture forces us to share spaces with them doesn't mean we have to show them any more animosity than, than the world is already subjecting us all to. It's just accept that there, there's an audience for this kind of stuff and maybe it's not uh, uh, sitting in your tummy perfectly for you, but uh, we're all stuck together. We got to make the best of it. <laughs> a big wad we're all culturally we're a big wad with all the little the little kids and the and the geezers it's the escape room thing is interesting to me because it's like it feels like we kind of come full circle here where escape rooms feel like they're in influenced by video game puzzle design in a very clear and direct way but 
now we have escape room games that are taking influence from the way escape rooms are made that as you described mm-hmm. it, Jacob don't rely on video game logic, which is funny that like we needed to have, we needed escape rooms to exist before we could make escape room games. I, I guess like escape the room games have existed before, like in flash games and whatnot. But now there's this like, sensation around it of like what if it was a cooperative experience and what if it was like an actual immersive thing instead of just like a curiosity that you engage with for one hour in a mobile game format um but it's interesting like how this genre is evolving due to now being influenced by the escape room medium you know yeah absolutely it it is it is a weird kind of recursive idea to have you know it's like now now we will have the escape academy real life escape room will be at like you know the next e3 or something yeah the first time i did an escape room my dad is claustrophobic and he was like scared for me he kept like sending me texts saying like if you get stuck or they don't let you out just call and i'll like i'll break the door down like dad i'm pretty sure they're gonna like let me out i don't think it's like <laughs> so no, i'm sorry <laughs> you gotta die in there you yeah yeah you have enough. you have to solve the puzzle or that door ain't opening i had a friend who uh, was easily stressed as well by the uh, mission impossible theme that was playing throughout the, like the last five minutes and he's like i don't need this at all <laughs> This doesn't make me any more productive. I think we're two or three big puzzles away from getting that final door open. Rats. I feel like I always want more out of my escape room experiences. My mom was obsessed with going to an escape room, right? She was like, I don't, I don't know why. She's not the kind of person who I would think would be into this type of thing, but she's like, I really want to go to an escape room. So for her birthday, we took her to an escape room and I couldn't, I couldn't tell like if she was having fun with it or not. And it also feels weird to be there as a person who like plays video games and has done this kind of thing before where I'm like, <laughs> should I sandbag a little bit? Should I like, like I don't want to make this less fun by being too good at the escape room because I have this stupid set of knowledge that I shouldn't have that makes no sense and has no actual application in the real world i just know the logic of these games and how they work and it's like i wish sometimes that an escape room actually felt like an escape room like i have to solve actual problems that i would and this is what i thought that an escape room would be like you actually need to do things that you would have to do in order to escape from a room that looked like said room instead it's like find the the hidden code that is like the someone unspecified person used a code on a lock and there's clues in like the painting on the wall that you need to find first it's like this isn't how i want to escape from a fucking room like i want to jury i want to macgyver my way out and this is why they have to tell people to like not pull stuff off the walls because it's way more interesting if there was like something hidden behind the shelf that you need to pry off with your bare arms. Like, like there's just, there's something more that is. Every, everyone's looking for that book that'll like make the book shape <laughs> pop open. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, maybe in some escape rooms that book is actually there that activates a door or something. But I wish there was actually more human planet earth knowledge that you could apply 
to this and like the way that things work in real life as opposed to like how things work in video games that I have to apply to the escape room to escape and just essentially solving a long chain of riddles. I'm criticizing escape rooms Mm -hmm. now, but that's what I want. That's what I want. A lot of codes. Thank you. I hate when they make me do math. (laughs) I don't want to do math. I want observation puzzles and, and sort of like logic puzzles. Fine. But don't make me have to like (laughs) <laughs> do an exam i'm done with that i went i got my Logic i got my puzzles. Puzzles. i got my bachelor's you dorks i don't need to do long division right now logic puzzles are fine with um there was a i don't know if i think it's more substantiated than just a rumor but apparently when disneyland didn't know what to do with like a big piece of like island real estate off their uh, off their orlando resort stuff they in the years between like it being the top selling game of all time and the Sims coming out, they seriously considered turning like a island sized space into mist, like a mist puzzle God. attraction through the nineties. Uh, and just imagining, um, you know, the kind of highs and lows and frustrations of mist with the added benefit of actually having to walk back and forth between ciphers and locks and puzzles and switches and knobs what a world that's the it's like the um the the picture of like this this would be the future if it's like the future if disney made a mist (laughs) island we're getting too close to what the world would have looked like had disney (laughs) built the mist island and but uh i think we can actually move on to listener questions just real quick before we wrap up here uh, there's only like two, but uh, let's see. What's something you wish games did more slash better that other media does? <laughs> Write characters. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think. I mean, honestly, I I do think that there are there are so few games where you kind of don't have to put the like good story for a game disclaimer after it you know that i i think that different storytelling mechanisms can make them compelling in ways that other media aren't but like really i just feel like the level of writing is so far behind more established media (laughs) and and we have just kind of like we we understand that as part of games but i don't think it necessarily has to be it's not due to lack of trying either it's just like an undervalued aspect of most commercial games. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think just making a game is so hard and and like figuring out how the story is going to work in it has to fit with like so many other variables than in when you're writing a book or something that, yeah, you just kind of it. It is competing for real estate with uh, 47 other things. I thought it was strange that in the Stanley Parable and uh, in other read and co games, as I'll call them here, uh, it's it feels like they need to go outside of the purview of how we conventionally understand video games to kind of engage better with like media in general and to like tell a more human story like the beginner's guide is all about breaking Mm -hmm. out of the video game form and it takes place in this space that is kind of neither within the video game medium it feels almost like a podcast being told with video games as an example but is not like exclusive to the video game form and i felt like that was one of the best 
stories ever told within like the medium of video games, although it's like trying as hard as it can to like not be a game in some ways and is like pointing at the medium itself from the outside. Um, so I think that tells me a bit of something about like w- video games have like a ways to go in that sense. Yeah, I mean, and the beginner's guide is also a good example because like, you know, that also could not be that couldn't be a book, you know, or a movie like it is necessarily a game and it is using the medium in in a way that is like core to its storytelling. But yeah, at the same time, it is like it is so different than how we think of game stories being told, you know, maybe maybe we're just kind of too locked into it's funny, this is the reverse of what the question says, but I think I think a big failure is we are too locked into trying to emulate other forms of media. I don't think writing a game story like a movie script works, uh, really. And I think kind of trying to do that is where some of the problems come from. Trying to emulate like your emotional response to things that movies or music or books does is a, is a greater use of your time than trying to emulate specific like devices or moments specifically that those films do like Mm -hmm. a game like the beginner's guide or even a game like disco elysium works partly because of the form and especially in disco it it gives so much space for those those delicious little words to sort of percolate in your ears a little bit uh in a way that's not emulating but certainly evocative of ways i've enjoyed the prose in a book yeah i think like video games need to get better at doing themselves you know and have that kind of confidence in itself as a form the way that film or literature does um let's move on to the next question just uh because i think that this one has there's a bit more to unpack here in, in in some ways uh but as a critic slash writer slash artist, creator, etc., do you ever look at something that you make and worry that you don't actually have anything meaningful or valuable to say? And or how do you deal with that? Uh, sure. All, all the time. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the way that I pick video topics is kind of thinking both like, Have I seen someone else do this? Then I don't really need to do it. And also, like, I don't want to write something or start writing something if I already, like, know the answer to it, really. You know, like, I don't I don't want to be able to, like, if I saw my own video title, I wouldn't be like, well, obviously he's going to say X. And so, you know, like, I I think sometimes the the not having anything valuable to say comes from having the point you're trying to make just be a point that uh, a thousand people have already reiterated or something. And so going in, not knowing exactly what you're doing, I think is actually a decent way of kind of making sure that you come out with something novel. Uh, but that could also be uh, specific to me. And I don't know. I, don't I get know this thing where when I, make something just in general, I will take that course where I'm like, okay, I'm going to start here with this big question that I feel like leaves me a lot of space to kind of do the work and figure out what my potential answer to this would be. And then when I, and I like kind of survey the, the entire argument, what I've said and what the arc of it is. And I'm like, did I actually, 
did I say anything interesting here that like I wouldn't have known before? And it's weird because a, you've had so much exposure to your own thing at that point where you're just like, I, I don't know if I could see this as novel no matter what, because I'm just like biased against it. Cause I've spent so much damn time with the right. thing. And then B it, th there's a certain extent to which every point when made sounds intuitive in some cases, if you do a good job, it will have felt as if this insight was already there in a sense. Yep. So I, I think those are like two things that are always kind of working against you. So that make it hard to judge what you're doing. I don't know. Do you experience that as well? I, I, I think that is a great, a great point. Yeah. That if you're, if you're doing a good enough job of explaining, it's going to feel obvious, but in fact, it wasn't obvious until you did all the work to, to write it out so clearly. Being, being trapped in your own mind and your own voice is, you know, a common and unpleasant experience. And there's a 101 different ways to say touch grass. But going for a walk can be pretty helpful to just like tone, turn the volume down on your own bramble of thoughts and less based on the what you're being exposed to on your like digital feeds. And just go for a walk, get some air, clear, clear house and what you'll be left with is sort of like the more resonant ideas you had on whatever you were working on uh, after it gets filtered through like the, you know, the coffee filter of seeing a pretty bird. I do also think the, the thing of just kind of like um, explaining it to your pet or whatever is both <laughs> good in making sure you know what you're saying and can say it you know concisely and also just like hey you know what your pet is going to be interested in the things that you have to say about like neon white even if it feels you know kind of useless uh in the moment that you're writing it and you know at the end of the day you're doing it for yourself right you're doing it for yourself uh at least that's uh what it helps to tell yourself um and it it helps to kind of get that out there uh if that's the mindset you have of like kind of releasing these thoughts in an almost like diary sense, this like self therapy as it were, and or reckoning with your own stance on a specific subject. I think that's like also a helpful way of looking at it, even if it's not like a hundred percent realistic. I mean, at least like that's what I do to myself to try and make sure that I'm like in the right space doing things for the right reason and have like, the correct expectations set for things, you know, I think that it's um, I mean, I, I'm sure we're all familiar with the experience of kind of going back to something that you did uh, earlier and and kind of cringing at it. But I also think that given enough time, you can actually look back on things and kind of the, your words can be a little foreign to you again in a way that reminds you like, hey, you know what? This is actually decent. Like, I forgot how in my head I was while writing this and now just reading it kind of as a stranger. I can see that this is good and has value. And if that's how I feel about this thing that I did a year ago, then I can kind of assume that a year from now I will feel this way about what I'm working on. That's a good measuring stick for, I think, success and or progress. And now I have a whole team of people who I specifically tell me uh, that if something I wrote is stupid, uh, you know, let me know as soon as possible. And you do the same to them. I mean, yeah, 
I don't use the word stupid, but. <laughs> but uh, I think we're good to wrap unless anybody else has anything to add here. Uh, vampire mark, Survivors mark? Game of the Year. Have you all talked about Vampire Survivors yet? Yes, we have. And do, do you have something coming out on that? Or do you have like a, a take that you want to share with the world here? No, I just think it. I, I mean, it's like, honestly, my feelings are on it are conflicted because like I think slot machines are bad. But like, man, I love that game. It boils down all of the things that feel good about a video game into some of its like most lizard brain component parts and it just works so well despite the fact that you don't even all you do is move like around the screen you don't even press a button to shoot in the damn game do you know that they have they have a new trait or a new character that's literally just a tree and it can like you almost can't move it moves very very slowly and like that's so it, it removes like the one part of the game that is the part that you play and it's still fun. I haven't played since month one and I imagine if I were to revisit the game right now it would be a completely different experience. Uh, but I, I want to check it out just for that like alienation that I, mean, I suspect it, I'll It's feel. the same experience. There's just there's just more stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at what point does it feel different because they've added so much more stuff? You know, that maybe I think that's when I want to come back to the game is when it feels like super different. But maybe maybe that'll take like way too long to get to that point. But um, yeah, I, I am a fellow man of culture. So you're saying it's better than Pocky and Rocky Reshined. I don't know what that is, unfortunately, but I will Google that and I will get back to you <laughs> later. OK, plug in stuff time. What's everybody working on? Uh, yeah, so um, you can I make videos on YouTube. You can find them by searching Jacob Geller on YouTube. Um, and I'm also on Twitter. Also, just Jacob Geller. That's it. Go. If you liked our conversations here, uh, certainly I've talked a lot about VR. I've talked a lot about um, uh, Zelda, as we talked about. I actually have. It is it is funny, Zach, that you brought it up. I have a video coming out in like a little less than two weeks that references Videodrome. So if you're a fan of Videodrome, uh, subscribe and and there will be something on, for if you. If you're eventually. a fan of anything that you listened to on Bad End Podcast, you should subscribe because you'll you'll dig it. Period. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people in our Discord. Disc, uh, sorry, patreon.com slash bad end if you want access. Uh, already know about Jacob Geller and his videos, but uh, for folks who are listening who are not familiar, definitely check them out. Toss them a subscribe. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show, Jacob. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, my pleasure. Zach? Just today, uh, we finally announced the summer issue of Broken Pencil. Also dropped the rebrand of the magazine that's been running since 1995. We got uh, our cover feature is uh, artist Grant Inouatan, a.k.a. HTML Flowers, writing about their experience with the pandemic uh, as someone who has combated cystic fibrosis their whole life. And the GSU generally looks at the relationship between the arts, where they went during this whole COVID unpleasantness. Uh, we also look at, uh, we, we spoke with folks at Club Quarantine, uh, we spoke with the folks at uh, Racer Trash, and we also have a piece about the emerging zine scene on TikTok. Interesting. And, yeah, so I'm excited to see what everyone thinks. Uh, for those who don't know, Broken Pencil is a 
magazine, an alternative literary magazine that's been running since 1995 with a bigger emphasis on uh, zine scenes, uh, alt-lit, and small press. So if that all is in your wheelhouse, in case uh, it's closer to your end of the video game ring, then feel free to hop on board with all the comics and oddities we, we have in this uh, this circus I'm now running. It's the first ma issue of the magazine that I've edited from beginning to end, so I'm very excited. As am I. I'm editing three magazines, so uh, Funland, Broken Pencil, and Lock-On. I'm all juggling like a circus clown. New issue of Lock-On is out, by the way. Go check that out as well. Uh, friend of the show now, Lock-On. Uh, great magazine, great Absolutely. writers, a lot of bad and adjacent people, people who have been on the show before are featured there. Go check them out. Um, not currently super culture affiliated, but, uh, definitely friends of the show. So again, to wrap things up, we are bad and a podcast. Thank you so much for listening. A uh, couple quick plugs. We got merch store live now, so check that out. Uh, you can find it at our site, badendpodcast.com. We now have a merch tab. Check that out. Um, I like the merch. I got the shirt. I got the hoodie. Uh, we got mugs, we got hats, a lot of things that people have been asking for for a while now. Um, and then we also got some new video stuff coming out on the Superculture video channel. So check us out there, youtube.com slash superculture. Uh, drop us up, subscribe, and that would be super helpful. Rate us and review us on iTunes, all that good stuff. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Later. <laughs>